The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Husqvarna, ready when you are. with the second episode of So Grow Repeat, the new gardening podcast from The Guardian. I'm Alice Fowler. And I'm Jane Perrone. And for this episode, we're gardening without a garden. Whether you're renting or you live in a flat or your garden at home is just too small, there are many ways to garden without a garden. There certainly are. Guerrilla gardening, vertical walls and green roofs may be all the rage, but British gardeners have been gardening without gardens for hundreds of years. Yes, we're talking about allotments. There are around 330,000 allotments in the UK, but despite a spike in interest in plots, they're under threat as urban land is targeted by developers looking for places to build new homes and councils eye up potential profits from selling allotment land to developers. So in this episode, we'll be looking at some of the ways you can grow without a garden. Coming up, I'll be chatting to Gayla Trail about how she gardens on a rooftop, on a street and in a community garden. But first, we're joined in the studio by George McKay, Professor of Media Studies at the University of East Anglia and author of Radical Gardening, Politics, Idealism and Rebellion in the Garden. Sarah Jane Trabar is also here. She's spearheaded the campaign to save the farm terrace allotment sites in Watford, which is under threat of being sold for development. And joining us down the line is journalist, allotment holder and championer of allotments, Leah Leendertz. Welcome to all of you. So to kick things off, I want to find out how we all, because we all do, garden without a garden. So I have an allotment. Leah, why do you garden? I have an allotment as well. It's on a Bristol hillside, North Bristol. Um, Lovely, sunny, very windy spot up just above Hawfield Prison. Oh, lovely. And Sarah? I garden at um, Farm Terrace Allotments in Watford. Hopefully for a lot longer. Hopefully for a lot longer, yes, absolutely. <laughs> and George, do you garden? Yes, I have a garden. I don't have an allotment, but I do occasionally go into my neighbour's garden and just tidy it up a little bit. I shouldn't have said that, but I bet he's not a garden reader. <laughs> and Jane, where do you garden? I am an uh, ex-allotment holder. Uh, I have had an allotment in the past, but I have quite a big garden now. But I do also have a green roof, which is it's, it's very ungardened, really, but it does have lots of plants on it. And I also help out at uh, community herb garden on a roundabout where I live in Bedford. And why did you give up your allotment? I moved house, so I moved to a different area where I, where I had to get another allotment and realised that my garden was now big enough that I couldn't cope with both and I was doing a disservice to my allotment in terms of not having enough time, particularly as I have small children as well. So I decided to allow somebody else, because there was a big waiting list, I thought it was really unfair to be kind of plot blocking, if I can put it that way. So I decided to to let somebody else have that plot and concentrate on things at home. But I still... You were a busy mum. I still have a ken for allotments. I will have an allotment again. It's, it's going to come back to me, but uh, it's a time of life thing, I think. So, I mean, that's one of the key things about having an allotment is that it actually can be a lot of work and um, Leah I know you have kind of quite an interesting way around that. Well uh, yes we used to share our plot and that really did come about because of a life change and not being able to quite cope with the plot anymore. Uh, My husband got ill and we sort of 
came to sort of staring at having to give it up because, yeah, the moment you turn your back, the weeds are out and, you know, you think that you've done loads of work and then you're away for a couple of weeks because of, you know, the kids being young and everything's sort of back to square one. And what we did do at that point was ask a group of friends whether they wanted to come in with us rather than giving it up. And they did. And um, But actually, over time, people started to drift away and we started to feel we could cope with it a bit better and the kids got older and easier to have up there. Um, so we are actually doing it on our own again now. I mean, that's an extraordinary example in some ways, isn't it, about how allotments can be these places where it can be all about community and then go back to being individual and then absolutely. come back into community. And you must have quite a lot of experience of that, Sarah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this is where allotments have um, a different aspect than gardening does. Because if we, obviously, if you're in your own garden, you're in charge of your own garden, you might get somebody to help. But in general, it's your own garden. When you have an allotment... It's really is a community thing, even if, you know, you're just asking somebody next to you how they grow carrots or asking somebody to water while you're away. There's always somebody who will normally do that for you. And I suppose at this point, we should probably just say that Farm Terrace isn't a lovely, very old allotment site. It's been That's there for right, some yeah. time, but unfortunately is has now a very uncertain future. Absolutely, yeah. We've fought three submissions by our council to deregulate the site. We've won twice. They've put in a third submission, but now that submission has entered into Perda until after the new government is formed. So we won't know what the result of that is until after that. And what do they want to do with the allotment site if they they got hold of it? On the allotment site itself, there's going to be uh, 65 houses, they say. But again, it's a movable feast because they haven't actually put in any plan of admission yet. But it will be housing and a car park at the moment. A car park. Yeah. Great. <laughs> no, fantastic, yeah. <laughs> and George, this sort of brings us on to, I suppose, your kind of world, that allotments are a funny place because they are owned by the council, so they are something that you rent from a kind of governing body, mm. yet they have always had this history of being slightly radical and having a history of a little bit of anarchism, a little bit of just bending, I suppose, the rules. Well, it's not an accident that the, the great study of the British allotment was written by Colin Ward and David Crouch. You know, Colin Ward is, was the veteran British anarchist who was uh, always on the lookout around the UK for places where he could see things like some version of anarchy, mutual aid, cooperation, communal uh, practical support and experience, people coming together uh, where that was happening. And he really saw it happening in the, in the allotment as a, as, as a funny place, as a special kind of place, as a demarcated place also but um, it's not just to do with the sort of social practice if you like it's also to do with things like the design the look of the allotment you know there's a there's a real pleasurable aesthetic in allotments and that's to do with Charles Jenks the postmodern theorist and fabulous gardener and the garden of cosmic speculation in the Scottish borders you know what a, what a place Jenks talked about ad hocism in the 1970s and I kind of developed that idea and talked about the idea of ad hocery I preferred ad hocery because it doesn't aspire to the ism of a science and it rhymes with mockery and uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I like I like the the idea of the allotment as a space of ad hocery. You know, you kind of think, oh, we need to make a greenhouse. What should we do? We'll get some old window frames. We'll put it in the in the old days. We need a new wooden shed. What should we do? We'll get some old doors and then we'll make a shed out of it. And there's a marvelous improvisatory aspect to the allotment, which is part of its pleasurable aesthetic as well. I think. Yeah, they definitely have a particular vernacular, don't they? That kind of architecture. I have a number of very ramshackled <laughs> elements mm. to my allotment. And and I think that's one of the kind of 
pleasures about them as a space is there's very few places and cities where you can see people really have that kind of creative, artistic control about something in their life. You know, your house is pre-designed, your work is pre-designed, and then suddenly you get given this space which you can take whichever way you want and there's always someone on the allotment that does something extraordinarily odd, isn't there? Absolutely, very eccentric. And certainly in our allotment at the moment, somebody's made all their raised beds out of glass bottles, which also keeps the slugs off, apparently. Um, but it looks great and, you know, it, like you say, it's completely different. Yeah, Anne on my allotment, for a while she had all the beds she's ever had. Hmm. They they kind of made her, her fence down the side. And I liked the kind of fact, she's been on the allotments for a really long time. I think she's been on there for about 30 years. So you could see this kind of progression of her life. <laughs> <laughs> there, there was an attempt in the 60s to create a sort of new style of allotments mm. that would be much more modern and much more streamlined that would have um, little cul-de-sacs for you to, for you to park your car on a little lawn, which just never took off. It was supposed to be part of how they were going to save allotments was to turn them into these little quite sterile looking pleasure gardens yeah. and uh, but then of course back to the land grow your own kicked in in the 70s and that was not really necessary but when everyone was ripping out all their period features in their houses it was an attempt to do the same with allotments and it's quite nice that, that was really just resisted <laughs> Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think that came out of the Thorpe Report in 1969, yeah. And they tried to develop this version of the Leisure Garden, which was a combination, really, of an allotment and a, and a place where if you, if you lived in an apartment or a flat in the city, you could go and have some outdoor space experience with your family, too. I mean, there was an earlier tradition with the Guinea Garden. There was an attempt to make that, that a sort of social space of where you plant, but also you have leisure space and leisure time. That was a little bit of a shift towards the continental version of what an allotment might be and the allotment as a green space that people who lived in cities could escape to within the city itself. And Sarah, one of the things about having an allotment under threat is that you then need to find a voice for a community that has kind of been thrown together. I mean, nobody really chooses their allotment neighbours. Absolutely. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about suddenly kind of being propelled into this position of having to be the person who stands up and fights. Yeah, it's frightening, actually, because if you came down to my allotment, you would hardly think that I'm kind of the main sort of, you know, rebellion sort of person for allotments in general. But, um, yeah, what happened with us was that we found out the situation, because originally they said it was for a, a hospital, and, of course, we didn't want to fight that. But then when we found out it wasn't for a hospital, it got bigger. So what we did was we formed this group. It's like everybody's allotments, we're all eccentric. We all have our, our different things that we bring to the table. You know, there's somebody who's a lawyer, there's somebody who's a fat finder, there's some somebody who's kind of an old um, hippie rebel. It was a mixed mash of people. And we got together and sort of thought, right, this can't be happening. And what I did then was I actually read Cleve West's book about his plot and about the community. And I suddenly realised that that was the thing that was really important to me was this community that had come together. And he suggested, I got in touch with him, he very kindly replied to my email and he said, you need to tweet and you need to Facebook and you need to get out on social media. And this was about three years ago. And it was quite strange and I was very scared about doing it because I'd never tweeted before. And I, I think my first tweet was, help, our mayor wants to build houses on our allotments. And people couldn't believe that this was happening. And from there, it kind of went on and, and, and snowballed. And we got in touch with lots of people in the media, but also lots of other allotment holders who had either been through the same thing or were scared that they might might go through the same thing or just couldn't believe that it was happening to us. And so it was that that kind of propelled lots of different discussions and lots of different groups. Again, it, it's all very organic.
organic because the pot next to us, they have now started helping us. So we're now involved with Coombe Valley, who are also under threat, with Stapleton allotments in Bristol that are also under threat, and we've become a united group. But yes, I never, I'm, I'm a stay-at-home mum, I'm not a campaigner, and I just wanted to kind of, my, for my children it was fantastic because we had a tiny backyard, I had three very small children, and the allotment to them is honestly an absolute oasis because they can go off running, they can get lost, they can make camps, and also really important to them is this community aspect and seeing older people and younger people and bringing their friends they they get lost for about an hour and a half and I don't see them and I'm not panicking because it it is a gated community which helps but also there's lots of allotment holders who I know are looking after them and and keeping an eye on them and keeping them safe so it's great yes we have become a community but not just farm terrace I think a much wider allotment community now as well. What I'm interested in George is that clearly gardening is a very radical political act because it's stepping outside of the system but Is it enough? I mean, can it ever really make change? Well, let's go back a stage first. Is gardening a political act? I mean, okay, I wrote a book called Radical Gardening, but I mean, often the titles come first in my books. It has been said they're the best part, right? But that's, uh, you know, that's not the case. So I wanted to revisit the idea of garden, the activity of gardening. I actually argued in the book that the allotment was a kind of anti-capitalist activity for, and for two main reasons, you know. On the, on the one hand, if you think about it, the allotments, um, the land value of allotment right, is kind of is rejected almost entirely, you know. If you rent your allotment from the city, from your local council, how much do you pay for yours? Sorry, yours? How much I do pay, you pay £70, but it's going up to 120 next year. Yeah. How much is yours at oh, We um, pay about £40. Pounds. How much is that land worth? The land at? is worth roughly around £50 million. Pounds. Wow. Um, yeah, mm. right. So there's a, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that your allotments are currently under threat, right? Yeah. And, uh, but the, across the country as a whole, there's a sort of an explicit rejection of land value in the kind of financial transaction. And the second thing with the allotment is what do you do at the end of the season? What do you do with your produce? What, what, what can you do and what can't you do with it? What you can't do is sell it. Yeah. You know, you have to give it away. There's a gift economy, a gift transaction. And the generosity of the allotment in that gift transaction is a rejection of finance, you know. And in those sorts of ways, you can start to think about the, the, the sort of dirty, earthy practice of allotmenteering as in some way political. It's interesting, that whole bartering culture. Um, I I put a message on Facebook yesterday saying, kale, who wants some kale? And and I've got various customers, including my friends guinea pigs, who love (laughs) love the kale. But it's that sort of warm, cosy feeling that you get from the idea that somebody else is going to go home and hopefully make something nice out of of something that otherwise would end up on your compost heap, which is quite, at the same time, quite radical. But going back to that cosy image, in a way, allotments do have quite a cosy image. I mean, I don't know what you thought of the latest, uh, what what I used to call it, the Great British Rake Off, the Great Big Mm. Allotment Challenge Mm. TV show. I mean, I read a lot of comments on um, allotment forum groups online saying, this is ridiculous, it bears no relation to our experience because they're starting off with a completely bare plot and... But, but in a way, that's how a sort of a sanitised version of allotments, which is very, quite different from reality for most of us who usually start off, I don't know about your allotments, Sarah and Alice and Leah, but, you know, it starts off and it's head high in brambles and it's got three fridges on it. You know, where do you start? How do you get Well, this is going? the point that, um, especially with our, you know, if, with any allotment that they're deregulating, um, mm. if it's a statutory allotment, they have to offer you another site. Now, to the council, they think that's just 
acceptable and that's a perfectly good idea whereas we know that you've put a lot of blood sweat and tears into that allotment but it, I, people ask me about the big allotment challenge and I always say they, they're looking for perfection and with allotments that's it's the opposite we're looking for really we're looking for imperfection and a vegetable that doesn't look beautiful but tastes gorgeous and, and I think they kind of lost the idea of it really yeah choose your media as well you know for your representation that you could go to what's it called the big allotment challenge i haven't seen that one and then um or um uh, i went to schnooze right schnooze is a brighton-based uh, autonomous free weekly news sheet that's been going for 20 25 years or so and um they quite regularly write about allotments and about related topics to do with food production farming planting the quality of food that's on sale today in the shops seed swapping and all of those kinds of issues anti-gm kind of activism and all of that and in that particular media text, if you like, um, you get a more radical version of what the allotment might be. So it's possible in the end that the allotment, right, is a sort of a blank ideological space and you can put whatever you want in there and you can get something different. And in a way, I wonder whether in the act of the fact that your allotment has changed from being a space for you and your kids to go to and enjoy and so on to actually a space of campaigning Absolutely, and politics, yeah. you know, yeah. it's shifted ideologically in the last couple of years in a yeah. way. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, again, had anybody said that we'd be working with one of the biggest law firms to try and strengthen allotment law, you would never have believed it. And who would have thought sometimes when I'm sat eating, you know, the blackberries off the bush that on my old rubbishy allotment with the kids running around thinking, how can this, you know, be be me now but it is and it is I think a lot of allotments you know we're running a big poster campaign because we want people to know that this is happening and that it could happen to them and so I think there is that kind of activism and of course it comes from the dig for victory um of course that you know during the world war it's always been part of that and it was kind of a to a want of a better phrase it's kind of two fingers up to the Germans originally wasn't it that we're going to you know we're going to be self-sufficient we're going to provide our own fruit and veg and now I think it's a thing of people being self-sufficient again but for different motives and for different reasons i mean i suppose it goes way back doesn't it, it goes back to the diggers and even further back to that to the enclosures no, act yeah. um and leo i know that you've looked into the history of your own allotment and i wondered what kind of compelled you to peel back the layers i have yes um and it was partly because of Sort of what Sarah Jane's saying about the idea that some councils have that it's okay to give you another plot, you know, a mile down the road. And I really feel strongly that that's not right and kind of wanted to get to the bottom of that feeling. And looking into the history, not just of my allotments, but of all allotments, realizing that actually they've all come from really big movements, uh, social movements or wars or really moments of drama in our society and as in, in our history. So yes, there was the enclosures of the very early ones, which are the, the ones that are out in the countryside. Then there was a wave of allotments that came about as a result of the industrial revolution of people moving into cities and people wanting to try and improve the quality of life for them. And then during the wars, as Sarah Jane was saying about uh, wanting to be a little bit more self-sufficient. So my particular site came about in 1917 when uh, there was a big push to just grow a lot more of our own food uh, generally to make us much more self-sufficient and I just think it's quite important these are a part of our heritage and you know they can't just be swapped for one down the road I think they're just as important as you know, the buildings and the, the streets that make up our towns because they are there for a reason and very much part of 
the fabric of our neighbourhoods because of that. And we now know that they've actually got incredibly important soil. There was a, a bit of research that came out recently, wasn't it, showing that it was some of the best kind of grade yeah, Sheffield one. University, yeah. I think, wasn't it, just the other day? And I was talking to somebody yesterday about it from the Blue Finger Alliance, and they were saying the point is that it's worked over time, so it becomes, honestly, one of the best kind of soil qualities you can get. Also with wildlife as well, allotments mm. have been proven to be the best source of, a lot of wildlife, particularly for bees, because it has all this cross-pollination going on. And I also think that whole thing about, and Leah and Sarah Jane and I can all probably account for this, this this interesting thing about being a young woman coming onto a place which was predominantly about an older male experience and then kind of negotiating. I mean, now I sit on my committee, you sit on your committee. Like, I found there's been some really interesting elements about that whole negotiation of how I'm perceived, of how, you know, how I've changed my allotments by my kind of, just by my being a woman and having an attitude about it. Yeah. Yes, I I do get still some quite a lot of unwanted advice from my um, (laughs) and I nod and smile sweetly (laughs) I I love the fact that at 42 I'm the whippersnapper down there (laughs) I I remember going to my first when I did have an allotment going to my first committee meeting and literally walking in the door and sort of pin drop moment where oh my god it's a woman and she's (laughs) under 60 and you know it can be in a very intimidating place to start the whole language of rods and poles and you just get into that thing where you're not quite sure where you fit into this pattern and I wonder whether you know as you say it's got to be changed from the inside and whether that some allotments can go down the route of possibly offering smaller plots which are more less intimidating to people who are just starting out because really a 10 pole plot which is completely overgrown with brambles is a hell of a yeah. thing to start with. But going back to my thing, I think, and, and what we said previously, social media has opened up allotments, and I think that's been fantastic because even if you can't talk to your plot holder next to you because of whatever reason, you've got a whole world out there of allotment holders who, who can, you can swap advice, and I think when that's a, a really important thing, and it's been absolutely invaluable for us. And I, I feel like, and, and on my committee, I feel like it's been really important with this new generation of younger allotment people coming in is to say, look, somebody doesn't get the allotment tip top in their first year (laughs) that actually doesn't matter as long as they are seen to be growing some sort of food or getting some obvious pleasure from it without upsetting their neighbours then that that's valid I do think though that there is quite a lot to be said in terms of allotment preservation for keeping those standards up I'm not saying this from the point of view of someone who's got a weed free plot by a very long way but I think that one of the things that the law says is that if uh, it looks abandoned, if it mm. looks like it's not being cared for, then mm. that's when people can move in and start looking at um, I think uh, selling it off. And I, so I think there's quite a lot to be said, actually, for kind of keeping that in mind and making sure that people are kept on their toes a little bit because it's one of the barriers that we can throw in the path of developers is to say, look, we're keeping it neat, we're keeping it tidy, we're using it. The the biggest things that's changed my sight is getting free delivery from the local tree surgeons of their bark mulch so they have a key and they just let themselves in and and dump it and then everybody has access to this like path making you know like so you can say to people at least you do just go and chuck some bark mulch on it and then it looks neat to everybody and you can kind of and there's a bit of guerrilla gardening that goes on when somebody's ill because or when somebody's on holiday because then you can go in and and sort of you know keep it looking at least trim 
find it very interesting when we've taken people down to the allotments, certainly journalists, etc. And I'm sure that you find this as well. People either understand allotments or they don't. And quite a lot of people who come down and say, OK, I've never been on allotment and they don't know what to expect. And ours is very urban. So we have a hospital and we have houses overlooking us and flats. And they're like, how can you garden here and not be aware of that? And given sort of an hour or two hours when they finally sort of finish what they have to do and they're sat down and they're having a cup of coffee out of a flask and the bees are flying around them and then they kind of go, I get it, I get it, I understand it now. Going back to George's point, and I think this is where it becomes really political for us, is that, again, councils, and they don't get it. We've asked our mayor to come down onto the allotment and she just won't come. And we keep saying, what are you scared of? You know, we're not going to... It doesn't do us any favours to, to hold a protest or to be nasty to you. We want you to see what it's about. And like you were saying, we really do not see ourselves as owners of it. I see myself as fighting for my children's future and for my neighbours' children's futures. That's what it's about. That seems like a good place to leave it. Thank you very much, George, Sarah-Jane and Leah. Coming up, I'll be chatting to Gayla Trail about how she gardened without a garden in Toronto, Canada. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Want a perfectly mowed lawn? The Husqvarna Ride-On Lawn Mower Range features a unique articulated steering system and front-mounted cutting deck, giving you unrivaled maneuverability in tight spaces around trees, under benches, and against fences, allowing easy navigation of most complex lawns. Husqvarna, ready when you are. Alice is headed back to her allotment now, but I wanted to find out about how people garden without gardens in other parts of the world. Are allotments a UK-only thing, like Cornish pasties and, I don't know, jelly deals and if so how do those who are keen to grow and garden overseas go about doing so if they have no outdoor space to call their own well joining me on the line from toronto canada is writer photographer and urban gardener gayla trail over the years gayla has found a variety of ways to fulfill her passion for gardening including community gardens and even on a busy public corner proving that you don't have to own a garden to be a gardener gayla welcome to sow grow and repeat So start off perhaps by telling me how you got into gardening in the first place. Was it something you were interested in as a kid or was it something you got into a bit later in life? It's a really hard question for me to answer, I find, because I don't think that my answer is very traditional. Growing up, I really didn't live in any places that had gardening space, except for in my later teens, we moved to a house that did have a backyard And I remember very spontaneously one day just going out into the backyard and going into a spot that I felt nobody would be upset with me for digging, and I just started digging. I don't really know why. (laughs) (laughs) I just wanted a garden, but it's not even something that I thought about rationally and um, or consciously, I should say. And then shortly after that, I moved out, and I was living on my own from then on in apartments, and it was, I think, my evolution as a gardener or my start as a garden happened in starts and stops in that it was this impulse that was in me that I didn't understand. It didn't come from anywhere. I do talk a lot about my grandmother who was from the West Indies and moved to Canada in the 70s and she lived in a senior's apartment building and had she did grow a few things like potatoes in a bucket. So Although there really wasn't anybody else in my family that gardened, and she certainly didn't ever talk about gardening, 
I feel like it's in my blood in some mm-hmm. sense because mm-hmm. the way that I fell into it was so it was just impulsive. So were you when you started out, were you just looking for something green to look at? Or was it about growing something to eat? In the beginning, I grew things very spontaneously. There were, I didn't make any decisions about it. I mean, I got plants from my high school biology class. My teacher gave me some cuttings. Mm. Um, I bought plants completely impulsively. I planted the seeds from from food that I bought just to see what would happen. So in the beginning, it was very spontaneous. And, and eventually, over time, it did move more and more towards food specifically. And it sounds as if you weren't sort of coming up on a traditional route of, you know, getting like gardening books out of the library or read watching a gardening TV show. It sounds like you were pretty much kind of going it on your own, figuring things out as you went along. Yes, it was actually years before I bothered to look for a book. (laughs) (laughs) So there was a lot of failure in there, as you could imagine. I mean, I always think you learn a great deal through the things that go wrong. And I still do every day. So many years later, I mean, failure is just par for the course. That's just a part of gardening. It's so true. Yeah, it is. And perhaps particularly when you're working, you know, trying to create a garden on on a street corner. Tell us a little bit about that. (laughs) How did that come about? Oh, wow. That was such a interesting experience. Um, I was living in a particular apartment here in Toronto, and I ended up living there for about 16 years, which is where I had my roof garden. And around the same time that I started growing on the roof, there was a small plot of land on the side of the building that was technically owned by the city. That was on a very public corner. A lot of foot traffic, a lot of car traffic, etc. And land is almost a generous word to give it. I mean, it was just scrub. It was, (laughs) I mean, at one point, a car had smashed into the wall one night. And so there were still car parts there. I mean, it was just, (laughs) and it was absolutely the worst soil you could possibly imagine. And I, when I was younger, anyway, I was always sort of fearful about breaking the law. And so I started very small, just, Mm. you know, scratching out a little space and putting in a few plants. But eventually, I took up the whole plot. How did other people in the neighborhood react? The reaction was very mixed, but I think that has a lot to do with the nature of the neighborhood at the time. It was a neighborhood that was in transition, gentrifying very quickly, Mm. and it created a lot of strife in the neighborhood. And so over the years, the way that people reacted to the garden changed. So in the beginning, there were definitely people who would stop me and say that they were really happy that I was doing something there because it gave them something to look at. There weren't a lot of green spaces in the neighborhood. Mm. There were other people who kind of attacked me. (laughs) That's the nicest way I can say it. Uh, Verbally, presumably, rather than... Yeah, or, yeah. Or pulled your plants up or... Well, there were also some really vicious attacks on the mm. garden itself in terms of things being ripped out, that sort of mm. thing. It, it was it was a battle. It was a constant battle and sometimes it was very disheartening, but then other times it was incredibly rewarding. So it was a mixed bag. And I suppose the trendy term is guerrilla gardening now, but... As you say, it has its pluses and minuses. I think it was a good lesson for me in what I think guerrilla gardening really comes down to on a psychological level anyway, is gardening without attachment. Yeah, because you're, you don't own that land. You're never going to own that land. What, what is it that's making you put the effort in then? If, you're, if it's not your land, why are you 
devoting time and energy to it, even when it's being torn up by other people? In the beginning, it was a desire to connect with terra firma. I, I had a garden up on the roof of my building, and eventually I also ended up with a community plot. But before I got the community garden plot, I had no in-ground earth to touch. And it was just, I just needed that. Over time, going through all these experiences, it made me think a lot about the city. And it made me think a lot about stewardship and the fact that even if you own land, you don't, in a way, you don't own it really in the sense that you're not going to be there forever. So what you do in the soil matters. Mm. It makes an impact on your community. It developed in me this idea of taking responsibility for how I want the city to be. Mm. But at the time, I'd never heard of anything like guerrilla gardening. I knew about community gardens, but there weren't very many in the city and they were really hard to get into. So for me, it was just a solution. If somebody listening is thinking about a bit of sort of ad hoc gardening, either on a very small balcony or a rooftop or a street corner, you know, what, how would you, what would your advice be to them in terms of how to get started and what to grow? Well, I think, first of all, in terms of space, you need to think outside of the box. One great model that's become more popular here is called a yard share where you find somebody who does have a yard that they're not using, or maybe they would like to have a garden, but they don't know how to go about it, and you team up with them and grow in their space. So that can work in a lot of different ways. I've heard of other really unique ideas too. For example, this year I was on a board that was giving money to community gardening initiatives, and I was really impressed by a garden that was being started in planter boxes on the roof of an underused parking garage. How do you go about sort of choosing things for um, for those kind of spaces? Obviously, as we've said, potatoes are good. You can grow them in a, in a large bucket. But are there are other things that you sort of swear by for those kind of limited spaces, containers or places where you might not always be able to get there to water. Yeah, you really have to adapt you know, your expectations based on the limitations of that space. And also, I think you need to be reasonable about what you can do, mm. how often you can get there, what your resources are going to be in terms of things like water, which yeah. are pretty important. Um, at My community garden actually didn't have water for years, right. <laughs> which was a really difficult. As that happened, I really had to go with the season, what happened that year, and, and adjust my expectations accordingly. Um, in terms of that garden that I was mentioning on the parking lot roof, they are going, growing quinoa, for example, which is you know a more drought-tolerant grain that also wouldn't mind all of the heat radiating off of the concrete. And they probably don't have a water source either. So I would think they wouldn't do very well with something like pumpkins, put it that way. <laughs> right. On that note... We shall leave it. Thank you very much, Gayla. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining us. And we'll be back next week with another episode. And it's going to be all about trees, celebrating just how wonderful they are. And if you want to tell us what you think of So Grow and Repeat, please tweet us at Guardian Gardens or visit our Facebook page, which you can find by searching for Guardian Gardens. 